Hey, yo, what's good, what's good, what's good? Welcome to Reflections of a DJ, the road podcast presented by DJ City and Beat Source. I'm one of your hosts, DJ Crooked. We got DJ Never. Yo, what's up? We got DJ D-Miles. Yo, what's good, what's good? We got Jamie the Great. Yeah, what up, what up? And we got my homie who's in Dubai right now. All of you guys know him from Everyday People. We got the fam, DJ MoMA, who's joining us today, guest what's hosting. What's going on? I'm really honored today, man. We have a very, very, very special guest. He's like one of the most treasured producers in music. I mean, for the last 35 years, he's created some of the most iconic anthems and worked with revered artists like Nas, Shaba Ranks, Miguel, Supercat, Jasmine Sullivan, The Fugees, Amy Winehouse, Grammy-nominated producer, musician, DJ, and Queens representative. We got Salam Remy in the building. Yes, Salam, sir. what's good, man? Hello, man. Thank you for joining us, bro. Thank you. My pleasure. My pleasure. How are you holding up in Miami yeah, after this... Uh, Crazy ass year of 2020, man. I'm cool. I'm cool. I'm actually, you know, blessed that I'd already uh, situated myself to being used to being at home a lot. Yeah. And I was about to poke my head out for springtime in New York. Like, I'm coming outside. And then I just pulled my head back in, like, hold on, let me wait for a second and see what it looks like. We are a year later going, yeah, I don't think it's time yet. You know? <laughs> Groundhog's Day. Just trying to see know, right? Spring's yeah. coming early. Exactly. He said long winter, so I'm easy. I got to personally thank you because your Instagram feed kind of like, it just held me down all of last year because I I just remember there was so much negativity. There was just so much heartbreak. There was just, there was just so many emotions that were like, you know, that were eating away at us. And then, you know, I would, I would just see you post like a live performance from Nina Simone or like Roy Ayers or Aretha Franklin or Bob Marley. And it would just kind of remind me of like, oh man, there's still beauty in the world, like, you know. And it, and and it, and it, it was like it, it seems like a little thing, but it was you were so consistent with it, like every day you just posted these amazing live performances on Instagram, and it really just got me through the year. I was just like, yo, like, this, he's really holding me down this year, you know. Oh, I'm glad it worked out for you. I mean, yeah, listen, I've been doing it for me. You know what I mean? Like just right. as far, you know, it's always a reminder as a creator that. 30 seconds of the right song can change your mood. Mm. You know, sometimes people get caught up on whatever's going on, but 30 seconds of the right song can just make you take you to a place. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So food and music is a thing. Like, you know, sometimes you just want to eat something that reminds you of when you were a kid or when certain things happen. Sometimes you want to hear that song and reminds you of a place you were. And when you hear not even a long clip, but just a little bit of it, mm-hmm. it takes you somewhere. And I think that the power of music, you know, I tell people, put it in a song that'll last longer than your feelings. And at the end of the day, we're listening to music for people that have been long gone, but still what was captured in that three, four minutes of the song still changes all of our emotions without me even seeing you and knowing that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's the power of music and it's the power of what we do. Um, and as long as we remember that that's what we're here for, you know what I'm saying? Not for the, the, the BS for the music. Yeah, it was just like, it just kind of like last year, I kind of forgot, you know, we all kind of forgot, I would, you know, personally, I think all, a lot of DJs, we just forgot we were DJs, you know, and uh, and then, uh, you know, just ha- seeing that feed and seeing like a live performance with Nina Simone or, or Minnie Ripperton, like, it's just like, oh man, like this is, you know, this is why I love hip hop. This is like why I became a DJ and you just, you would just sprinkle those like every day, you know, and it, it just... Just really helped. And what did you just, is there like a process where you just kind of like went online and you were thinking of an artist and, and you kind of searched on YouTube and you 
screen recorded um, and posted it, you know, like I started it back in 2017. Yeah. It was cool. one was one of my cousins came to my house for the first time and he was telling me where everything was at. And I was sitting there going, how do you know where stuff is at in my house? And he's like, <laughs> oh, I saw it on your best friend's Instagram. I was like, how do you even know him? And then how did you see on my Instagram, my floor? But so I was like, you know what? Number one, I'm not putting nothing in my house online. So I was like, <laughs> let me declare why I have social media. It's a portal for what I do, which is the music aspect of it. Right. So that was one. And then the but, second but part. Before, yeah. before you continue, let's just make it known that you do have a nice ass house in Miami, though, right? Yo, <laughs> come on. <laughs> all right, all right. But you know, either way, I'm like, I'm, there's got to be something, some allure to it, something that you're not going to be able to know unless you went there. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I kind of like, you know, that's that's the thing. So Just Ike said it, you know, if you, if you didn't provide and say your name, you weren't there. It got to be certain things you won't know unless you actually arrive there and experience it. So yeah, yeah. just to the privacy. I threw the privacy wall up on that part of it. And I show parts now, but it's also parts I never show. So mm-hmm. it's, it's what happened. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of it, um, I was working on something, a project, and I just wanted to have where artists nowadays, like, you know, they were able to come out and do exclusive versions of songs. Like, you know, the things that I'd be looking for, yeah. which was somebody sitting down and, you know, D'Angelo and Quest Love at Brooklyn Bowl, just with them too. It was versions of the songs that I wanted to experience and look for footage. So I started just looking up footage of when these things happened, um, kind of looking to do it. And I still will do it more. Like, you know, having more exclusive things that just happened that we can now make it the history of music going forward. So it started as a little research, but then I was looking for the performances that made me feel something. And that's really what it is. My music that I like, you know what I'm saying? The music that I look for, the performances that if I post it, it's something that made me feel something. And then I'm also checking to see yeah. what if I felt then did somebody else feel it too. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? And that's just really what it gets down to. Whatever genre it is, whatever moment it is, whatever thing it feels, it's always just about, you know, music with feeling. Because that's what a lot of us missing. We have masses of machines. We have a lot of audio robots, but we don't have necessarily people with feeling and skin on their hands that beats on drums. There's obviously this nostalgic feel when you're posting these 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 songs and these artists. You know, it takes us all back. And you, you mentioned like, you know, eating your favorite food from back in the day. Does Is it also kind of like, does it help you kind of remember back in the days? I know your father was Van Gibbs, you know, very talented musician, worked with like the Fat Boys, Curtis Blow. Does it take you back to just growing up in Queens and hearing the music in the background. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we all get to a point in life. It's like, you know, I have to keep my father out of fruit trees in my yard. Like, what are you doing? No, there's a star apple there. I see one. And I'm like, get off the ladder, man. You're 70-something years old. <laughs> <laughs> it gets to a point where when he was my age, he was in Trinidad stolen mango trees because it took him back to a, a great time in his life. Right now, my food is... Uh, a beef patty with cocoa bread. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, patty with cocoa bread. But just to have the patty with the cocoa bread, I'm like, yo, you know what? You know, it's the whole idea of where are you? So, yo, you need more than five, $400 million. I'm like, really? I could ride my bike to the patty shop with four quarters in my sock, with eight quarters in my sock, and get a patty with cocoa bread and be good. So the, the, the simple things in life that make a big difference. And whether you got a million dollars or a dollar, it still has to be certain things of culture that keep you rooted. Yeah, and that's what I'm all about. I'm all about rooting musically, 
and you know, always feeling what I feel. I'm a kid that grew up in the '80s in New York with the hip hop, you know, generation, and you know, expanding to all types of music. Same, same here. Yeah. yeah. But I gotta feel. I gotta feel a certain way about hip hop. Like there's just a certain energy that that sticks with me. You know, Jamaican mm-hmm. culture. I'm not of Jamaican descent. I'm of Trinidadian, Barbadian descent. Mm-hmm. But when it comes down to it, Jamaican culture is part of New York culture. A certain right. way that you feel. You know, I want a yellow man in Sugar Hill Gang. So I just feel like a lot of what I do is rooted in that. And realistically, a lot of my really big records were also rooted in something that came, you know, from way before. And if you think about what the songs are, they weren't what was popular at that minute when it came out. They were actually what was popular way before that. I asked about your father because me and Mo were, were talking earlier and we were just kind of wondering, like, you were doing the keys on, like, Curtis Blow songs back in the 80s, right? Mo, do you want to ask? And him? I was thinking, I was thinking like, wait, I was trying to do the math, and I was like, you were like thirteen or fourteen playing on a Curtis Blow record, and I'm like, couldn't Curtis Blow get like a professional keyboard player? Like, how did you get the gig? <laughs> you know? How did how did your pops how did your pops sell you to Curtis Blow? Yeah, how did he finesse that one? What, what happened is crazy. I mean. So so back in those days, were you living like in the same area in Queens? Were you in that area, Mo? Jamaica, Hillside, Hillside Hollis, yeah. I check it. I lived in Cambria, right? Okay. Um, so you know, Q four to the last stop, basically. So basically, right what happened was my dad was promotion at that time. He was, there was promotion at Arista, but he was a promotion at Polygram. So he would pick Curtis Blow up from the Red Eye at JFK, swing around the belt look and see if I was at the bus stop in Cambridge, pick me up like six, seven in the morning oh, wow. and drive me to school up on Hillside. Sometimes we would go right on Union Turnpike across the, the highway. Sometimes we stopped at the IHOP or whatever it was like. But right on. Up, I had a couple of my friends with me. They'd be in the car with me and he would drive me to school. But sometimes Curtis Blow would be in the car. <laughs> so Curtis knew me from picking me up. And then when he's picking me up, Yo, so what's happening? And then I have my tape. My tape is what powered me as a kid. You know, I still have my tapes right here behind me. I have my cassettes. Like, I have all my cassettes that I grew up with. At the end of the day, I would have my tape. And then I was like, so what did you tape off the radio this week? And that would be the new Just Ice, the new MC Light, the new whatever it was. I was totally tuned in. But at the same time, I had my beats, I had my drum machines, I had my keyboards, and I was doing stuff. So I think the aspect of, even though McGilla Gorilla, I wasn't that involved in, I was really more them than me. Um, but Curtis knew me from me being a kid. It's like, nah, his, I remember specifically being in the car. We were coming across from Hollis Ave, crossing Jamaica, going up like towards 212th way, so a little bit to the right of your area. And we were going mm-hmm. up, up on the, the Grand Central over there. And I was playing Sweet Teas, It's My Beat. Jazzy Joy, on the wheel. Jazzy Joy, no one better. Jazzy Joy, beat it faster than 86 Jetta. Blood and terrorizing, baby, that you can bet. And if you battle me, never let me see you sweat. And the Jazzy Joyce on the wheels. Jazzy Joyce, no one better. Jazz- and Curtis was like, wow, this was, that was, but he's no, remember, this is Curtis Blow, but he's living in L.A. So he's landing in New York 
And the oh, 14-year-old okay. kid, kid is now playing with the kids are rocking with right. for him. With Curtis Blow being, you know, early 30s or whatever he was then. And everybody, you know, Pops had a Volvo at the time. So he's pushing the Volvo. I'm in here like Jazzy Joyce. Now nah, this one is go too. And then that cuts off. And it's no more music for this. Then whatever records is doing. So I was kind of like the kid who was feeding that energy back to, you know, the grown, grown man. At that, you were TikTok. You were TikTok you was, before TikTok. <laughs> you was his go-to. What was going on in New York back then? Since yeah, he was in LA, he knew what was popping. Everybody who was doing stuff, and then that yeah. would happen. And then when they got to the studio, so even when like that record, I was gonna say I wasn't as involved in. But then later on, it was like, oh yeah, Curtis is coming back in the studio. I'm like, word. Which mm-hmm. I got back by popular demand, Curtis Blow. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And that's what it became. Back by popular demand, Curtis Blow. I was playing around when I said it, but they did it and made it his single and the name of his album. Wow. I was also making beats. You know, I was making beats. I was trying to figure it out. And then in the summertime, I get a chance to hang out with Pops and then He'd take me up to Mr. Magic or so wherever it was, Awesome too. You know, I was getting the chance to look at it. Classic Concepts, Video Music Box. He was subletting part of his space to them. So oh, they wow, were man. in the hole. So I was like literally walking into hip hop in 15, 16, walked into Latin Quarters, saw everything that was Oh, that's amazing, man. Wow, so, crazy. So I, it was really there. But then also my dad being a producer who worked with Belafonte, who worked on Tiny Gardens albums, who worked on so many different things beforehand. You know, he worked with Belafonte during the Beach Street time. I remember he came up to my junior high school driving the kit car the night. Dude, that's crazy, man. <laughs> and wearing a Beach Street jacket. And his kids was like, yo, your father was a muscle man. Like, he was just like, yo, what's going on here? So it was crazy. But like I said, he was in different worlds. But why he tuned into hip hop, was because I was it. You know, I remember sitting outside Edison signing my ASCAP papers, you know what I'm saying, in the car. Wow, that's what the Because most people, most people might start, you know, DJing around 14 or 15 and then make beats later. Right. But you started producing. Yeah, because I was playing drums when I was three. Like, my basically how I'm, how my parents met was that my dad was started a band with my Uncle Joseph, my mother's brother. And then my Uncle Joseph and Thomas, my mother's brothers, both were like, you know, musicians doing stuff all over the place, played with different people, Mickey Murray, whatever it was. My Uncle Thomas played keys at the church, but then he also was out at All Platinum working with the Sylvia and the Moments and that group. And then my dad was starting to do stuff. And then you know, my other uncles, my Uncle Lenny played with Lonnie Liston Smith and different people. My other uncle, wow. um, Chris, was a bass player. He played with Bust, you know, Buster Williams, was his teacher, and Brother Ah and Sun Ra and different things. So they were all musicians. So now when I'm born, I'm the baby of it. But also my dad and my uncle were in a band in Queens, St. Albans. And then they pulled in the bass player, which is Larry Smith. Mm. So they had a band called Stone Free that used to gig around and do stuff. But Larry was somebody who was actually in that space. So I was born into this, you know, being the, the two-year-old I was seeing a little kid playing along with his dad yesterday. 
And I was like, I was better than him at that age. <laughs> <laughs> they were laughing, but I was like, I was serious. I was able to play a thing. So when I was three on my third birthday, my dad took me to the drum store and I had the sticks and I was doing something. So Miles Davis, you know, drummer Elvin Jones, actually made me a small kit, like kind of like what a Quest Love has for kids now. He took a floor tom and turned it sideways and did it. And then from that time, I was just in it. You know, my dad had produced the first record that Dougie Fresh was on. Um, you know, when he was an intern at Arista and decided, you know, he was going to learn the music business, he was also going through all the record stores and met Dougie and, you know, Bobby Simmons. Is it Bobby Simmons? Yeah, I think it's Bobby Simmons um, that had Enjoy Records. So in his record store in Harlem, and then he took Dougie and Spoonie G and him in, in the studio along with Sly and Robbie, who he was cool with, and made a Pass the Dutchie cover called Pass the Buddha on the left-hand side. And that was Doug's first time in the studio. No religion, or you can say just fun when you get the Buddha blessed. So like I said, I, I grew up seeing it. And then Doug calls me like, yo, I just thought about something. You was in the studio touching everything when we was making the record. Like you was all over it. And I was like, yeah, so it was. You know, the first session that Bernard Wright had as an actual paid musician were the time of God not sessions for that worked the body, worked that body out. So that whole Paradise Garage classic stuff. And I remember him literally coming from music and art, you know, him and he had a girl with him. I felt like her name was Hazel, but maybe I'm imagining that. But he had a girl with him, and then they both had braids with beads on them, looking like Rick James in them. And I was just looking at them, but they came from music and art, and he came right to the studio to play. And I was like, wow, Bernard's young. And, you know, I was eight, nine, you know what I'm saying? Kind of watching what was happening. But the, that reality is that I saw that it was a path from early because the person that, you know, I was looking to it, even though I wasn't living with my dad, but I understood that that could be a job. You know what I'm saying? It didn't have to be you work at Queens General, Long Island Jewish. You know what I'm saying? Right. You know I mean, saying? it's crazy that people don't really know the history of of Queens, you know, in the 60s and the 70s. You know, like, I think, and especially like the Jamaica area, you know, Miles Davis lived there. I think John Coltrane was there for a while. And then mm -hmm. a lot of the people that you just mentioned in the 70s, mm -hmm. you know, Bernard Wright, Tom Brown, Don Blackman, and like other people moved there and they, that whole sound was created. Like y'all know that song, Jamaica Funk, that's what it is. Yeah, A yeah. lot of people think it's about the island of Jamaica, but it's about Jamaica, Queens, you know? That's, that yeah, whole collective came out of that area. And that was a jam. There's a um, Jamaican restaurant on Farmers Boulevard, kind of closer to like Foch and the other end of it, called The Door. Well, that used to be where they jammed. And that was their place where they always played. So that restaurant wow. on the door is their spot, you know. And actually, my father went to Queens College um, as well. You know, that was his Vietnam dodge. Like, oh, really? I got two brothers out of the house already. Let me just get over here and get my college on. So he was taking music to Queens College. But a lot of those guys he knew from being in school with them as well. You know, so they were all kind of working together and doing their arrangements and no, they were in the scene, just like as, as as excited as we are as DJs or musicians. You'd be like, yo, we know what's up. We go into one spot in the space when they were the same way as musicians. And I grew up being the little one that was around that. Mm -hmm. And even how, like, you know, I looked on Facebook yesterday and I was like, whoa, because they all so happy just to see me still being an active producer. But I'm really the little brother of that whole generation. That's how they see me.
saying? And you know that that whole generation with with the production work for like Curtis Blow and and Dougie Fresh, it was a lot of live instrumentation. But you know, at the same time in that era, I mean, a little bit later, you had Run DMC that came out. You know, LL Cool J. You was talking about Farmers Boulevard. Um, was there a change for you at that point when the production went more like, um, you know, drum machine based? Yeah, I mean, well, so I went to um, junior high in East Elmhurst, um, and at that time, uh, who's I call it eighty three. I had gotten a keyboard, a Yamaha Porter Sound. I have it downstairs. And that keyboard allowed me to program on it. So I didn't have to just use like the regular little, you know, organ type of beats. I could actually do, I could hit the beat on it. And I had this thing on the cheese box riding from Jamaica back to, you know, to East Elmhurst back and forth. And Akinelli actually was one of my classmates. So it's always like, nah, Slum had the beat machine in junior high, you know what I'm saying? Mathematics from Wu-Tang went to high school with me. He's like, yo, you're the first producer I ever knew. He was DJing in True Force back then. So he was doing a lot of different stuff, but he was also like, nah, you was actually making stuff. So I had that in 83, 85. I got a 707 and a DX21 and 4-track. I helped out with some MC Rail records and some other stuff eventually. I got an S900. You know what I'm saying? So while I was still in high school, I literally had the machines that everybody was doing. I was trying to program Funky Drum on a 707. <laughs> it was hard. I didn't understand them all. He had this oh, It was sampling the drums and then flipping it. And then by the time I got to my 12th grade year, um, I only had like maybe three, four periods or something like that. So I would go up to Edison, be at high school for a few hours, and I would get on the train, ride to the city to downstairs records, go beat digging, mm-hmm. find some breaks, see whatever it was, ride all the way back to Queens, wait for my friends that were still at school. Two o'clock, we jump on the floor. We get home by three o'clock to watch Radio Music Box. First things first, I just put up the music that I respect and from there, letting it all permeate because it's a certain seasoning, it's a certain taste that you have that allows you to be a producer over a long period of time. You have to pick what projects you want to be on. There's certain you know choices you have to make like now people are saying, why did you arrange God bless the child like that? What made you pick those base choices? And I'm like, oh, this, but I, honestly, it gets to a point where you're working and it's outside of you. You're not actually thinking about what you do, which is part of your field. Just like as DJs, like everybody can have your records. They can have your computer. They can stand in front of the crowd, but they ain't got your touch. They ain't got your timing. They don't have your momentum so it's the same thing with the instruments that we've been able to use using records or using you know what do i post today i was feeling like this i posted this wow that's how i was feeling too but i didn't see you i didn't know that i was just in my zone doing what i do and it's kind of like the same thing you know it's a dj we're selecting stuff we're deciding what records we want we're kind of feeling things out and part of me even being insulated is is you know like i'm sitting in my record room right now where i have all my records computers set up, you know, a djembe, you know, saying all my cassettes. This is my little space. Lee Scratch Perry over my head watching me. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the the seasoning of what I like 
it's just back down to all oh, people want to get this. I'm not sure, but I gotta like it first before it's even gonna pass through me. You know, you know how it is to be a DJ and you don't like a song, but you gotta play it because the crowd loves it. Yeah, you gonna play it the same. I love that you're bringing up the whole DJ thing because this is in fact a DJ podcast. Yeah. So you know, the way everybody started back in the day is we was carrying somebody else's crates, and I want to know whose crates were you carrying? Chuck, chill out. Chuck, well, chill out. Wow. So, Chuck, chill out. Funk flex. Basically, me and flex. So what happens is, all right, cool. My dad's producing. Then he gets a production deal and leaves the label because now he's producing records. He's producing the Fat Boys. He's producing Curtis Blow, but he's the promotion person. So like, man, you over here promoting, but you get money on both. You no know, jealousy. So he leaves. He gets a production deal. He signs MC Rao, but he also signs Chuck Chill Out and Cool Chip. And when he does that and they have a record, uh, Rhythm is a Master and different things. Yeah. And putting it together now he's utilizing all of his efforts classic concepts is next door they're doing the videos i know what to do with the promotion aspect of it the production is coming through and you know chip and chuck are putting their stuff together but flex was actually a driver like he was driving back and forth for frank jugger was going for the store frank give me this you know i'm coming in i'm 17 and the way chuck would describe it i used to babysit him you know what i'm saying but it was just like i was now coming in hip-hop and chuck was living down the hall so I was able to get into places, go to the radio with him. You know, Molly had gotten transitioned off of BLS, and then Chuck was there. And then now my dad's like, well, Chuck, you got to talk. And, you know, cool. Funkmaster Flex on the one and twos and call. And I'm in the room. I'm the overseer salam. I'm writing down the records. And it's Funkmaster Flex doing it. And to the point wow. when Flex is now DJing in the clubs, he's DJing at Red Zone. He's DJing at home base. And I'm in the DJ booth with him watching and seeing what's happening and everything that's going on. And I'm knowing the schedule almost as good as him. Yo, Noah, play the uh, leaders. Buster just walked in. He knows the crowd gonna be looking at Buster, but if Buster's songs start playing, then he gonna throw energy up then. You know what I'm saying? So I'm watching right. how to make the crowd react and then also taking my knowledge right back into the studio. So Chuck, being a producer and a DJ, when he wasn't on point, me and Flex just rose and kind of stuck into it. You know, I did a Public Enemy remix with Chuck. You know what I'm saying? For how to kill a radio consultant. You know what I'm saying? I got punk enemy credit. Yes. And then you know, get the <laughs> wow, man. Of Marley Mall. I'm like, yo, Marley, can I get some co production on Craig G? You know what I'm saying? Because I saw he let Lost Professor and Fatal co produce Intelligent Husband's album. Yo, yeah, what you got, Shorty? So he's bringing up, what you got? Oh, 1200 over there. I go down to my room. I got two crates of records, but I played some stuff and I made a tape. And I got three cuts on Craig G's, you know, second album. So I was just like, yes, Craig G. Then I'm learning how I know my remixes. So I'm making my little beats, but I'm also have all the 12 inches because I'm with the DJs. So now I'm blending Latifah acapellas or whoever on top of your record comes out. I'm putting your acapella on one of my beats. And then I'm finding somebody at your label that I might know through the promotion person. Yo, I did a little remix to it. Now I was going to get this beat to Jocka's Biz. But you know, if you wanted five grand, I could do nothing. So I'm hustling. So now I'm in the city hustling, doing whatever it is. Wow. But it's the same time until 1997. Every Friday, I'm at the radio station with Funkmaster Flex, writing down the records, almost being the intern. You know what I'm saying? Someone producing the show, writing down the songs, seeing what comes in, and right on the pulse of what's happening, understanding the clubs. I'm at Tavern on the Green or, you know, Supper Club or whatever's happening, but I'm sitting out watching what's going on as far as people's reactions to the music. So when it was time for me to produce, you know, then when we're at BLS, 
Bobby Condos was also working at BLS. Mm -hmm. So then now I'm going to the studio with Bobby, helping him with all the reggae records and everything else is happening. But I had a real clear understanding of what made a DJ excited to play the music on the radio and also what worked in the clubs because I'm in both places just as much as I'm in the studio. And I'm living in Midtown, so I'm literally like across the street from Red Zone. I walk out the back door of Red Zone and fall in my bed. You know what I'm saying? So then all of my records in the early 90s you know, whether it was Mac Daddy, Mac Daddy that did well from Philly, you know, the stuff I did with Bobby or Ziggy toss it up, breaking the dough. Those things were there leading up to Fuji's nappy heads and all that stuff. Those things, like I understood how to get the city built. And then, you know, the same energy I used with Mac while I was on it, I understood how to get the city built. And once the city was lit, New York is one of those places that whatever's going on there, if it's the right record, it's going to travel. I feel like when you were talking about your understanding of what's happening in the hip hop clubs, uh, you're working with Bobby Condors and obviously your understanding of the Caribbean culture um, mm-hmm. and your ability to talk to the label folks and even the fact that your pops had produced Heartbeat for Tana Gardner. I feel like all that led to Aini Kamozi, the Hot Stepper remix, mm-hmm. right? Everything coalesced in so, that so- one song. Here comes the hot stepper, murderer. I'm the lyrical gangster, murderer. Big up the crew in the area, I'll tell you specifically where I got the idea. Um, basically, what was happening was that when I was working with Bobby, it was like, all right, cool. I'm going out. I'm record shopping. Me, Rashad Smith. You know, I'm seeing PQ-Tip. I got my man, Len Funk. that lives in VA now. But all of us are going out shopping. We're in downstairs. Everybody that was beat digging, we all knew each other. We would see each other in the same spots. I'm out there digging with the best of them. And what happens is, Every time that somebody would use something, like Biz used Bobby Bland for toilet stool rap. And I'm like, whoop, nobody's gonna wanna buy that for hip hop now. I put it in this reggae pile so I can cash them in with Bobby, like food sips. So Bobby, when we got a reggae record, I'm gonna give them the same sample that the hip hop cat just used. So Super Cat's Get A Red Hot is direct reflection because Daylight used it on Biddy's from the BK Lounge. Oh man. Right use that no more. I've slid it right over into that pile. And then now when the reggae acapella comes up, we're all from Jamaica. I'm just going through the hottest hip hop beats of the week. And that was my blend. And then what ended up happening is like, you know, it gets boring. You know, after Kenny Dope and them had done the super cat dan dada. Now he's a super cat man, are you a dan dada? Now he's a super cat man, are you a dan dada? Now he's a super cat man, are you a dan dada? Listen, so now it became the lyrics didn't have anything. It was just a DJ record. But I was always about making songs and making it feel like that was the original record. If you listen to Ghetto Red Hot Remix, you would think Supercat did the vocals to that track mm-hmm. because of Ball and Key. Bill Stephanie used to say that about me. He'd say, Slum, he said it to my dad, like, your son samples. But the interesting thing is all the samples are in key, like they were played that way. But I, that's just how I heard it. And it was just a blessing that, you know, I'm from Queens, we had blend tapes. So I already understood I could speed this record, record up plus three and slow that one up down negative two. Wow. And somehow these two records I heard in my head are in key. You know what I'm saying? And that's what would happen with Mega Bantons, Barry White, or whatever it was. But back to Aini Kamozi. So now I got bored. I didn't want to do them anymore because everybody was doing them. And I'm just anti-trend. 
So now I'm standing in the um, booth at Red Zone at Daddy's house with Flex. And I'm looking at the speakers. So we would always have, you know, segments. You're going to play the classics. You're going to play the hip hop. You're going to play the reggae. You're going to play whatever's hot. So what was good about using the hip hop records going into the, you know, the reggae records is that what I was doing was using the hardcore hip hop and the reggae. And then now you could use that segue either way out of it. You can play your dancehall hits, go into the hip hop one, then back to your hip hop. Or you can be playing your hip hop, play the hip hop mix of the reggae record and then go into your straight dancehall. Because it still was getting a half an hour segment, 15 minute segment, whatever it was. So what ended up happening is I got bored, but I know we still play the classic session. So I was like, you know what? Instead of me blending the hip hop with the reggae, now I'm going to blend the classics with the reggae. So I did um, Shaba remix with Don't Look Any Further for Let's Get It On. I did Supercat Outstanding Remix, where I used um, South Central Remix, where I used Outstanding. Sitting in the South Central California with my slip tail in a man. Watching the grips on the blood on Chicano, a program I move up to and from. And from watching them destroy the old dreams. Moving from the project to the housing scheme. Good boy, I move up with a machine. 24, Mr. Mega, Mega Banton on top of Barry White, you know, playing your games. Right. That was all part of the same set, basically, I was making, but I was producing a set for the clubs. That's ultimately yeah. what happened. Y'all laugh. We start eating clothes our people grow, and we start eating people and chop them bones. Why don't leave the sound to tell you what? We are not going to take the chop down. Here's the same one. Watch out. I have never heard a sound play so heavy and so clear with a sweet tone of melody, the cold one for here. Never heard a sound play so heavy and so clear with a sweet tone of melody. What's up? I did, you know, a bunch of inflections that don't, don't, da, da, don't for Lady Saw or somebody. So I talked to him. I was like, this is what we're going to do. We're just going to take all these old classic joints and put the reggae underneath it. And that's where Here Comes the Hot Stepper comes from. Mm. And then that's the mode Shaggy had bombastic. Because everybody was following what I was doing. Mr. Bombastic. We want to some bombastic, romantic, fantastic lover. Because I'd already produced Here Comes the Hot Step as a song. And it sounded more like Cypress Hill. You know what I'm saying? It was more like na 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 You literally could play Cypress Hill's first album and the original Ainy Kimozi Here Comes the Hot Step. And it had the dan 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 and then the SOBs, drums, like everything sounded just like a Cypress record, pretty much. You know what I'm saying? These, he was singing like Das Effects. No, no, we don't die. No, we. And like he was, you know, Bo, I know what Bo don't know. That was like a Das Effects. I'm the lyrical gangster. Like he was thinking like he was Cypress and Das. You know what I'm saying? When he wrote it. I had a convo with Never about, you know, obviously 
the uh, the heartbeat sample for the ID Kamozi. And we were wondering if you got that sample cleared because your pops did the arranging on, on Heartbeat. He was involved with the record. Did that help at all? Yeah, he, 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 he actually didn't get credit on that record, but that was a left yeah. the track. So he was actually able to use his influence to make sure I had a favorable deal. Oh, nice. But it worked out. That was the biggest selling thing. So his thing was, whatever credit I didn't get, you got a tenfold. So then it worked out. The way it's supposed to. Did that record top out at number one on Billboard? Yeah, yeah it went to number one on the pop chart. It's huge that's, crossover record. That's crazy that just something that you like cooked up in your head essentially a genre that didn't exist, a hybrid of hip-hop classics and reggae, went to number one, you know, in like the early 90s. That's just unreal. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it knocked in the club, you know, I think DJs picked it up and didn't didn't work for you after that point. That was was the best part. When it's made for us New Yorkers, it works anywhere. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't made as like, you know, I have the Smurfs singing it in Swedish. It wasn't made for, I don't know, it wasn't made to, like I'm trying to make a pop record. I was literally making, you know, murder, do what I'm gonna say. That was made for, you know, money, yaka, money, yaka, money, yaka, yaka. I do anything for you. That was that energy that I grew up with. You know what I'm saying? That Burt Reed, Crown Ice Affair, Paradise Garage, that do some jams, lock it up. Um, you know, the Green Guthrie. When you heard Sly and Robbie playing on what was disco right? so it was all relative to me that those those things went together. And Heartbeat was still that joint that played in the clubs. The Larry LeBrand broke this down tempo record. But I grew up like, you know, Heartbeat's a jam. Those four hip-hop records that sampled it, two on Columbia Records where it came out prior, uh, Curious George and Marky D had sampled it. But Mm -hmm. the way that record came together, and I remember when I first had the idea, I was at Hot 97, you know, every Friday. So I did it on my four-track at the crib, and I took it and messed with it, and then I played it for Flex and Angie Martinez. And she was like, yo, I like that. And he's like, yeah, that's just how it could go. Wow. So I was like, oh, then we did it. And then my pops and crew took it, you know, he had his promotion team. So he had his street promotions early and he took it and got it on the box in Houston. And then it got on Hot 97, then Columbia chased it. Then we had to clear the sample. You know what I'm saying? But it was what it was. It all worked out. You used to Barry White on Mega Banton. And I wanted to ask you about the etiquette at the time, because maybe like a year, a year later or two, yeah. the Black Moon remix came out for I Got You Open yeah. with the exact kind of very similar arrangement. I woke up in the morning, hopped on the train, I saw my man, he had L in his hand. Hide it from the beast, at least I catch a buzz before I hit my block. I take a mega hit from the on the good ship, lollipop. Was that just um, a coincidence? Because because they they literally the way you formulated the mega banton, even when it hit the second verse and it went to like the guitar mm-hmm. solos, the boom boom, boom boom. I said champion, I play the goldie girls. They must wait a sound point over there so funny please and I bring this my sound. Are you going fade away? Cause we know rock we no skin, we no love neither. Yeah, my crew walk the streets at night Like looking for the right one, baby If it's payday, you're at your doorstep I never sweat swinging the F Nowadays, cause my breath Black Moon did the exact same thing At the beginning of the second verse They took that same setup, that same And then, and then like, I remember at the time I was like, yo, like, that's crazy They just, and a part of me thought They 
they sampled like you know they took it from the Mega Banton. I think um, maybe it was inspired, but maybe they just had the same idea. I mean, for me, I look at it like you know, great minds think alike, and at that time, Evil D and Walt were on Hot ninety seven too, mm-hmm. so we were all around the same space of doing stuff. I heard it, but I never really took offense. Some people were like, yo, you use the Black Moon, but I'm just like, I wasn't even tripping over records. I was like, all right, cool. So make another one. That's my, my thing. Oh, that's dope. Do it again. You know what I'm saying? Because that's very diplomatic. Again. That's very diplomatic. <laughs> and you didn't actually put your name. You After didn't put your name on the remixes. On which right? remixes? Some of them. Well, on the 12 inch, it would just say remix. I mean, if you if you read the sticker, it'd say produced by Salam Remy. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. like, I always felt that. A lot of people didn't know that you made those remixes unless they read the credits. I actually, I actually, the first time I recognized the Salam Remy remix was the Bush Babies "Remember We," and that that name came out, and I was like, "Salam Remy, who's that?" Because that remix, it was so good. Like I just remember that, and I just that name stuck with me, and I was like, "Oh man, Salam Remy, that remix to Remember We." You know, the Bush Babies had, it's like this, y'all, it's like that, y'all. It's like this, y'all, it's yeah. like that, y'all. And we're like, wow, that, that single blew up. And that was a totally different Bush Babies from their first single, which was like some weird, they were like some cartoony group before that. Well, I know that you know and you know that I know that I can swing anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. To be my guest and I'm swinging. I'm not barking at your door. Well, I think it might have been before that, because that was the second album that Ali Shaheed produced on. But the first album, Ambush, I'd already produced on the album. I did I Just Can't Stand It or something else. Mm-hmm. So I'd already worked with them from Jump. And then they were asking me to remix Remember We, and I didn't want to do it, actually, at the time. They were really like, yo, give us a foodie vibe. And I was just like, sorry, leave me alone. There's a thing called... <laughs> um, there's a thing called... I mean, it was cool, but I just wasn't rushing to remix no. I was kind of in, in the space because even now, like really right now, today, I'm supposed to make a bunch of records. I'm so aggy. I don't feel like doing it. Like I just, <laughs> I just, but anyhow, um, it was like doing it, but there was a thing called the last check for Thanksgiving, where after Thanksgiving, you can't get a two-signer check out of the building. The signers have left the building. The budgets are now closed. <laughs> you ain't getting right money. So when I did Nappy Heads for the Fuji's, it was the same thing. I was trying to get that last check before then. And I remember literally recording Remember We during Thanksgiving break. Um, and it was the same thing. It was just like, all right, y'all, all right, know what? I'll do this one. Cool. Send the money. It's so crazy. Like, all, all these songs were like from my childhood, like, you know, my early teenage years. They were like the soundtracks for the whole summer. You know, like yeah. Nappy Heads, the remix was the soundtrack for the whole summer. And it's like, mm-hmm. because of that remix, we went and we tried to, buy the album for the Fugees, right? Which is Blunt in Reality. And we were like, yo, what? what is this? This is like a totally different group. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and I remember like, we was, I remember like when I bought it, we was tight. We was like, yo, like, what is this? Like this, like what, like what happened? Like, and then we Dark were kind of like, we felt like, yeah, we felt like we got, we were like, what's going on? Took. I have 
when Nappy Heads the remix came out, we bought the maxi single like three times because we just kept running it over and over and over throughout the summer. Mona Lisa, could I get a date on Friday? And if you're busy, I wouldn't buy tickets Saturday. Round up the posse, Fuji coming around the way. I don't puff blood, so I always got my breath. Never had to battle with a bulletproof vest. They call me Cockweasel, but I still can't adjust. And it would, it, the tape would get fucked up, we'd buy another one. And we ran it so much that we could tell the differences in Lauryn Hill's vocal performance in the explicit version and the clean version. And it was one of the few times where we heard like different versions. I really heard that. Did y'all really yeah, notice that? I really noticed that because I watched the videos, another version on there too. What's the cool to do? Kids are acting ooh, and it's getting mad up. What's the cool to do? Kids are acting ooh, and it's getting mad up. The dirty version. The clean version and the video all have three different vocals. Why did you? Why how did that? Why how did that happen? Because she's obsessive about her vocals. Oh, and wow. from jump, I remind her of how she did that all the time. That she would come back. Okay, we got to do an edit. Okay, we got to do an edit. Can I do my vocal over real quick? Since you're doing the edit, and then she come back and do her vocals over. She did her vocals for Fuji. Uh, she did her vocals for Fuji Lai What for an entire week? Oh, wow. oh shit! But that's just her always when people put more bass. Said she'd be this little put a little more bass in my vocal. A little more bass, a little more bass in my vocal. She always wanted to hear her vocal a certain way. And even now, I'll be like, you know what? You keep going, want to do your records over? It's not the record. You want to do your vocals over. So it's out. And then it's out, but I'm not happy. You want to do your vocals over. That's just her. She will obsess over her vocals. But a lot of our superstars will obsess over their vocals. So. Because the video version was the best. It just sounded so, it, it was like. Honestly, I have to go back and listen to yeah. do it, but I knew it was different. Because I would just laugh about it all the time, but I've never really sat there and done it. So if you actually heard that back then, yeah, you're good. Because, <laughs> because in, in the dirty version, you would hear that kind of raspy. She was still trying to do that raspy flow from like the album, but then by the video version, you could tell she was kind of getting in her Lauren Hill, like the Lauren Hill that we know. She was getting in that bag because she was a little bit more effortless and smooth, and she wasn't trying to. Change the voice like this and like make her voice like raspy. You know what I'm saying? Like, Lauren had that, like, she would try to change her raspy voice and stuff. And then by the time she got to the vocab remix, I, I feel like I was like, that's the Fuji's that we know. And then I, I I would listen to the original vocab and I was like, what is this? You got the vocab. I got the vocab. You got the vocab. You know, I got the vocab. You got the vocab. I got the vocab. Hey, yo, pass the mic so I can show them I got the gift of gab. Monkey see, monkey what? Because it was there was no drums and they were rhyming on it like they were onyx. Like, like it was you like, got the vocab, I got the vocab. <laughs> you hear this remix that was like so smooth and effortless, and they were like melodic, and you heard Lauren Hill singing for, for like some of the first times. You're like, holy shit! Hey yo, one two three, uh-huh. the crew is called refugees, uh-huh. and if they come for test the rap style. Stop the violence and just bring it on. Why I, I want to know so many things. I don't know how to ask it. I think the process is what you're asking about. So yeah. the process was disarming them. Mm. Um, there's a thing that I do with, I do with anybody really, 
if, you know, because first of all, a lot of people might see me and never hear me speak. I might pop up and I'll be standing in the corner and I'm like, so cool. But then once I start talking, you can't shut me up. It's a whole nother thing. Like, you know, <laughs> I talk like five hours straight. And then somebody be like, wow, okay. I, think, I didn't know if we had so much to say. Like, yeah, I understand what it is, but I don't say anything. So what I did was when I first met Wyclef, when I decided to do the remix, um, I played him the bells and the drums of Nappy Heads, but I put It Ain't Hard to Tell acapella and Jay Roo's Come Clean acapella on top of it. So he heard Nas and Jay Roo's flows over that beat. I was like, this is where we're going. He said, okay, that's his own. All right, cool. So you want to front, huh? But um, it ain't hard to tell. I from trail. Um, then he came in. You want the battle swing? I bring. bring, bring, bring right. king. You want a battle swing? I bring. Command them in like I was king. In all your dreams, I write the horror flick of Stephen King. Cling the thoughts on those in favor. Say ah. I got tired of the fat lady, so I sing to my own opera. This is where we're going with it. This is the mood. And then when I added the bass and put the pieces in. So that was Wyclef's, like, you know, I had him rhyme for 13 minutes, and then I went back and plucked, like, okay, this is... Oh, man, okay. I I will take different pieces of the whole rhyme. Like, I still have this own thing that he did. And, you know, he rhymed till the tape ran off the first time, and then we put it back on, then he rhymed him again, and we caught it right before the tape was. So that's why it's not 14 minutes. It's like a seven-minute version of the six-minute. Wow. So once he did that, and I was like, all right, cool. Yo, Mona Lisa, can I get a day Friday? Even like the beginning of Shiba Shiba Y'all, Mama Libra Y'all. If rap was a something, I'd be the last. If rap was something, if rap was extinct, I'd be the last living dinosaur. That's what he said. And then I was like, Shiba Shiba Y'all, Mama Libra Y'all. Stop. Because mm. I understood. I made it for DJs. So it was like, you know. A Chiba Chiba Y'all, well, I'm a Libra Y'all. I have a thing where I put quiet stuff at the beginning of a record, so you got to turn it up. And then when you turn it up, now it's slapping you right in your head. So like they kept at the beginning of Get A Red Hot, my voice going, uh, there's a little quiet little, uh, and then it, uh, bing. So I did the same thing. I put the because I understood that that was going to be a lighter sound, a small. Yeah, you're nappy but you got there. Mm-hmm. And then I'm whispering, y'all, y'all nappy heads, lay some treats on us. Word. Well, me and Lauren are talking at the beginning. Of cool. But then once it goes, word, yeah. get the four award tours, you know, it's the same drums as what they use in award tour. They chopped it up different. But now you get the four award tour slaps upside your head with the snare and then the bass drop. That's the beginning of Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I just caught the first bass notes and then played them how I wanted to. Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. When it slaps into the beginning of the record, now the first thing you hear vocally, tat, patat, patat, boom. Yeah, I'm a Libra, y'all, y'all, y'all. Chiba, y'all. I'm a Libra, y'all. So even if I don't like you, the way the record starts with those snares into the beat dropping into Chiba, Chiba, y'all, I'm a Libra, y'all. When I told first old Flex, he's like, what you doing this week? I was like, the Fuji's. He was like, Badoof, wow. No flex Jamaican, so he's like, we made a record called Badoof, wow. Like, Boop, bah, another son, I'm gonna die. Boop, bah, if a boy's up, come try. Boop, bah, another son, I'm gonna die. Boop, bah, if a boy's up, come try. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Boof, bah. 
<laughs> when you when they say booth bath, you know, most of them, yo, booth bath, man, knock the booth on the floor. You know, it was like the phrase, but booth bath, they just were saying it, I guess the Haitian way to saying booth bath or booth bath. That's part of what it was. So he's like, he made a record. Ah, yeah. So he was like, good luck. He's good luck. We'll see. But I understood that Chiba Chiba, y'all, I'm a Libra, y'all, was going to hit all the B-boy in his brain. The way the snare is, and then when the flow comes in now, you want the battle swing. He's like, whoa, they in pocket. So I understood the way the record started, where it goes. I'll fly away. Oh, good. Okay, I fly. Okay, I fly. Okay, I fly away. Oh, glory, glory. Double beat it. You know what I'm saying? I already knew what the DJ's going to do with it. So they getting all the way there. Mona Lisa, can they get a day to Friday? Now it gets to Lawrence verse. So with Lawrence verse, she was rhyming more like Arrested Development. That was her flow, you know. But she had a, that was Arrested Development was huge at that time when they were recording their first album. So she had a female vocal timbre to go into. What I had to do was that Jabos and Timber Boots, ah, that's the service. She's like, I don't want to sound like Dedic X. You're not going to sound like him. You're just putting flavor on the sound. I don't wear Jerry Curls because I'm not from the West. It was like, I don't wear Jerry Curls because I'm not from the West. Can you switch this line up right here? Just this one line. That was my work during the first session. Mm. Try to have to loosen up Jabos. And then, um, what you going to do? I was going to ooh, what you going to do? His acting, ooh, is what it said. But I made those other little things because I was like, give wow. me some. Type of flavor rather than this being 12 lines that had the same as cadence. Right. So that was my Lauren Hill work from the first session. Kind of getting in and getting her to loosen up. And then she didn't want to do it. And then to go back and forth. And I understood how to work with her to get that production down. And then when we did that, we got to a certain point. So what you heard during those versions was what I initially got the first day or two session. And then we had to go back and do it over. Now she knows it better. Now she said it different. Then he got you the video. Now she's going back. So she kept saying it over, but it became who she was because during that time she was able to loosen up and use more of her, you know, how do you sing beautifully and then also rap really straight? You know what I'm saying? And she would always prefer to rap real straight and my home and I drop my bars. And, but I'm like, if you give me some cadence with it, then you actually can. Oh, man. That's crazy. So that, that's really was the process. And that same process, like before they did their vocab remix, I did my vocab remix. So then that's where the rhymes and some of the cadence came from. And it was vocab of the night, vocab, and the Dana Dane type of energy. Did it and that was done, and then they went back and did their version of it, which actually became the more popular version that they did the video because it was still more like their original with enough beat. But they were also starting to understand we have massive amounts of talent. You know, in the first session, Rock Up was being born in the Brooklyn town, gave us like he could sing anything, he could play his guitar. But I was like, nah, first we're gonna start with Rock in the City, then we're gonna rock the Northeast. Then we're going to keep picking it up step by step. You can't please everyone with every record, not off top. You got to start, you know, get rooted properly and then go from there. So that's what happened. And, you know, the, that process allowed us to get to Fujila and, you know, get to that point where I did, I was doing songs for Clockers 
And I actually um, recorded another song with Double Clocker. And during that session, it was like, yo, play that beat. And then I ended up playing that beat. And then Rock Club jumped up with the We Used to Be Number 10. And then I recorded the song, went through it, got it done. And then they got the budget for the second album, which became a score. What me and Crooked was saying is that yeah. we think that those sessions kind of birthed the iteration of the Fuji's that went on to like kind of conquer everything yeah. with the score. I know that's you a know? bold statement, but you know. It's a very worst I mean, well, if you listen to how Fuji La sounds and then listen to the cadence of Cowboys, even. It was like they started finding things that match what that energy was and then brought it all around. Yeah, I was doing research on you and the score, and I didn't realize you only did one song on that whole album, and that was Fuji La. But but the whole album sounds like a, your production though. Yeah, they had it on three times, so I got paid three times. You know, with the other remixes, it was cool. I I made up for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Was it true that "Killing Me Softly" was originally your idea? With really? Love, a prize calls me up one day. You know, and I'd already done my two songs for the album, so you know I wasn't cheap. So they had to pay me what they paid me, and then it came back down to um, yo, Salam, what's up? Yo, if you was going to do the song, you know, killing me, so how would you do it? And I was like, um, maybe like we need the apple bomb. Because I was thinking about that original drum. So I'm like, a word. That's the same thing I think. I'll call you back. Please. <laughs> 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 I'm right around. Yo, 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 who got the, um, the record? You chop over the Bonita Apple Bomb, you got the record? I played it, so I got an idea. But they took the Bonita Apple Bomb, took this mini Riverton part, they took everything off. Wow. And then Jerry played the bass line sounding just like Nappy is. I'm not mad at anything that happens or where things come to because I feel like, you know, a lot of what has to happen in the world is pay it forward. Like, I don't, um, I could have been a, Producer on the score on the whole thing, but I felt like when I was listening to what they did, and I was like, you know, at that time Tip had just done a lot, um, a lot of the mixing on Mob Deep's album. Yeah, and I was like, you know what, I could do a song or two, but just bring me back. Let me hear the beats you got. And you played me like how many mics and Ready or Not and a few other beats, and I was like, yo, why don't y'all do it, and then I'll come in and help you with the mixing. If y'all need anything, just call me. Mm-hmm. And, it that way so then i wanted my time back i wanted to be easy and mellow and you know ultimately the score was still influenced by me even if i didn't do it but Absolutely. also you know why clef went on to produce destiny child's first hit mm-hmm. they had other records but that no 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 remix was a big deal mm-hmm. and that pushed them out so i haven't done any records with beyonce or destiny child but i did help the person who helped the person you know what i'm saying and that's really what it's about it's like this inspiration is free and if you can continue to, you know, push people to do stuff, you know, I help Miguel do stuff. You know what? Yeah, you, you came with that part for Kaleidoscope Queen. You co-producer. Matter of fact, well, what you doing? Let me hear that. You know, send me the Ableton. I'm going to play something on it. All right, here, take it. You do what you got to do. Because I think that that's how you build a community. You know, you don't sit down and say, I'm going to plant a tree and then every fruit off the tree, I'm going to charge this hole for it. You actually plant the tree and then that tree is going to feed people when you're no longer around. Mm-hmm. Wow. Amen. God damn. That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> what a blind. Wow. 
that's that's very zen like like did you always have that perspective or did you ever feel any type of like you know frustration uh with any of it that you had to kind of just center in and be like yo like it is what it is you know i'm doing this for the greater good you know even the people i grew up with they kind of live out in the streets but i was never the one who wanted to be in the front you know what i'm saying i'm never out i see what's happening i'm in the conversation with my people indoors but i'm also clear that i'm not meant to be out front, that's not what I do. I'm the person who I'll whisper something to the guy who's gonna now speak to the whole world. You know what I'm saying? I'll come up with an idea, but it's someone else's voice that I can maybe carry it. You know, just recently now I start talking to people wanna hear me talk and that's cool, but it's like the people I wanna talk to are the people that are gonna influence people. So me sitting on this pod talking to five DJs about things that DJs understand with the people that's hear this as being DJs, they're not going to play this for thousands and thousands of people. It's kind of like, you know, understanding your position. And my position is to help inspire people that I will never meet. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's just um, what I've found as my purpose. And did it always have that? I mean, there's probably times when I looked and I was just like, wow, nobody even said my name. You know, Andre, you want to think that I said that. You know, you're human. So you feel like, yeah. oh, wow, you didn't really do that. But then, but then if everybody goes, Hey man, congratulations on you did this and that. And I'm like, chill, man, I've been did that. I'll just catch it up. So this, this is the Queen's got a lot of back to okay? yeah. It's like, oh yeah, it's real quiet over here. Or it's probably real sore. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> you just I would have definitely felt some type of way if that prize killing me softly shit happened, you know. I, I laugh. I could have chased them, but they were so busy getting sued by so many other people. <laughs> I yes, I could have been on the whole score, but I would have been part of all those lawsuits on top of that. Yeah, wow. Well, so yeah, you dodged right, your Pick your battle. <laughs> pick your poison, as I say. You know what I'm saying? Like you decide which way you're gonna go into. You know, I could kind of miss me with all the other. Right, right. You you have a real process. Like when I when me and Mo were talking about you know the work that you were doing with the Fugees and you know all the other. I mean, there's so many artists that you work with. You seem to have a way of making them feel safe and honing into their sound. Obviously, a lot of us are big fans of Amy Winehouse. I think I've seen the Amy documentary like 12 times, and you know just just watching it. You were really a safe haven for her. You know, like working with her. She was just so much at peace. And I kind of like, you know, watching it over and over again and, and seeing how you guys interactive and how you worked in the studio, I can't help but like place your approach with her to like all these other artists and making them feel comfortable and safe and then somehow finding their sound. Is that something that you learned in a, like early on in being in the studio or is it? So remember when I told you um, that I was on a cheese box and I had this little drum machine thing? Yeah. So also what would happen is in the machine's box is that there was this really pretty girl that lived a little bit off Springfield Boulevard for me that we would ride on the bus together. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she would feel so comfortable that, you know, I'm 11, 12 years old. She would ride halfway through Queens sitting on my lap on the bus. And everybody would be like, what the world is going on? Like, and she was like, you know, this is puberty. So she's starting to pop out. Her hair's like, she was the Beyonce of the bus. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was just like, what is going on here? And saying that, she felt safe enough around me to tell me whatever was on her head. This is my brother said this. 
My dad said this. I like somebody that this that, and the third. If I had produced her, it would be the same type of energy because people do feel safe. But what I'm saying is that I don't think I got that later. I already had that from early out. Right. Where people feel like they could talk to me or, you know, I would be a three, four, five-year-old kid, but I would talk to the 60-year-old person in the room more than run around with kids. Like, I just had a spirit that was able to make people feel at ease. And I think that um, production-wise, um, it's the same thing that happens. Like, I, I'm able to understand what my job is, and my job is to get something special out of this moment. And it doesn't have to be, you know, some people have a hit sound. I'm going to give you the snare that's a hit. Ooh, wait till you get on this snare, because it's going to sound just like all the other records. People are going to know you hot because you got this snare. That's not my process. My process is to get the person to actually sound like they're most unique. So I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to find out the common denominator. What about this person relates to everybody's story? Wow, you know, Miss Dynamite's Dynamite The first lyrics are, I'm the same little girl that grew up next door to you, went through all the things a teenage girl goes through, hanging out all night, breaking my curfew. When my daddy hit the door, I gave my mama the blues. That's my influence. That's me saying, you have this long album and you have all these things and you're Miss Dynamite and you're the biggest thing in England at the time. But those four lines kind of lets every girl say, wow, my daddy did leave and I did give my mother the blues. This was a similar thing to kind of make it get back to it. That was the same thing that made me do have left eye do a record called Block Party. Talking about, yeah, she'll go around the world, but what's your name, Lisa? Where are you from, Ninth Street? Because it's still a thing that lets us all know, you know, as the New Yorkers on the pod, y'all understand when I'm talking New York stuff, where it lands, because it reminds you of a certain moment in time. All right, so then first thing is to figure out what's similar. So, so I understand what's the groove, you know what I'm saying? What's the groove that we all gonna get? Then the melody should be unique. So then the melody for me is what about you, you would do or say that is unique. There'll be that one kid that grew up on the block where everybody listened to Run MC who was like, nah, I listened to this other back in black and this other part. You know what I'm saying? The way that, you know, KRS-One on Criminal Minded is singing Hey Jude, but saying Boogie Down Productions or mm-hmm. Always Pay Paid. Mm-hmm. I didn't know nothing about no Hey Jude in high school. I wasn't paying no attention to <laughs> Beatles, but his introduction of the Beatles to me was there. You know what I'm saying? You know, I got a dope beat. So I'm hearing things from other cultures being brought back in. So it's the same thing I'm doing with the artists. I'm like, so what song do you like that I'd be surprised about? Really? That's what you like? Wow. You can sing that? And then I'm hearing them do something that I didn't expect. So now I'm still at home with you, but at the same time, I'm learning something about you that everybody else didn't know. So that's my conversation. When I have conversations with artists first, and then I find out whatever songs they like, and then I figure out what's the sources. So I'm basically getting lyric source, music source, everything else, and then we paint. You know what I'm saying? And that's really what the records are, and that's why they stand up to be one of a kind. I love records that are anomaly, like like Come Through and Chill with Miguel's like that. Like, what is that? It was Miguel wanting to go home and me dragging and going, come on, I'm hitting extra snares, trying to get him to be excited. He's like, bling, 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 bling. Oh, small, leave me alone. He's like, there's something when you were hitting extra snares that sound interesting. So I went back and booped it. 
He's like, shift the guitar over. And then once he shifted it over, I'm like, ooh. So I'm trying to hype him up. And I'm, then I got an Instagram video. I got the camera out. I'm like, yo, woo, And I muted it and posted it. And he's like singing. He's trying to find words. And I'm like this. like, And we in the zone. And then everybody's hitting him. Wow, that looked crazy. He's like, but what do I say? I'm like, tell the truth. And then I leave. Um, let him tell the truth. And that's what we did with All I Wanted You Ran with that song. And I told the truth. It was raining, you know. Just say you will. Those sweatpants and come and chill. That's what it is. Stick to the truth in its own way. I don't know what record sounds like that. I don't know what record will sound like that because it was just the moment being captured. You know what I'm saying? When you have a photographer, the photographer captures a moment. You don't even know all the things that are in the picture because he's capturing the moment. Great. What's the same thing with recording? Like, you know, I'm capturing the performance. Like, you might not sing it. You heard all the different launch performances. You could tell. But what you could tell is also what other people felt. You know what I'm saying? Some people can't hear it. They can't tell because it all sounds the same, but they get a... Something about this actually hits the thing. It's like, yeah. you know, those performances always and forever. Love, 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 love you forever. It's like, dang, she used to love me. You know what I'm saying? Like, people get a hug. You know, something else you go ahead gonna taste like that food, you know. Like, like I said, it's these things, these creature comforts, you know what I'm saying, that actually happen based on that. And for artists, you know, I like to be um a single entity, you know what I'm saying? Even for when people meet me now, even if I've done a lot of records, if they look me up as that, but the reality is I'm still not in the front. So they don't feel like they're telling the world their business. They feel like they're sitting in this room that I'm sitting in right now. And they're talking to a guy, and they're almost getting the low key. Now it's called me a psych. Uh, what is it? A psychologist that makes beats too. <laughs> Basically, I sit down and hear what they're saying, and then I make some music to it. And then if it feels right, it might stick. But I want to be interested. That's the main first things first. That's what it really is. If I'm not interested, and if I don't care, then it's going to sound like that. If I do care, and I'm interested then it's going to have another thing to it. And that's what I'm just trying to find ways to keep myself interested. I haven't been able to find anything I wanted to listen to for the last four or five days. So I'm kind of like, I didn't believe it alone. Mm. Come back when something really, you know, I'm sure you have days when you got to go play and you really don't feel like it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Biz used to DJ. Biz was my boy. He spent a lot of time in my house. I did a bunch of records with him. But Biz used to come in. I remember we were at the Grand, right behind the Palladium. He had to come in and DJ at one o'clock. And, you know, I think Clark Kent, Flex, everybody DJ before him. So it's like, what you going to play, Biz? If Biz Mark is about to get on, what he going to do? Dance and sing a song, whatever. And Biz starts it with Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. <laughs> where you going to get on? Where my ladies at? Where my ladies at? Let's get on. Um, it was like in 1993, people are like, <laughs> where'd this come from? Then he plays it for like maybe 45 seconds. But you know what I meant to say? No, I would say that, but then he throws on, I want to sex you up out of nowhere. At that time, you know, the drinks is there. I felt like there was like an air of mist that just <laughs> in the club. He plays, I want to sex you up. And all the summer dresses just started looking lit. I'm like, that. <laughs> he just came after a whole hip hop night and plays I Want to Sex You Up with Marvin Gaye. Then he plays uh, the acapella of Top Billing. 
I want to sex you up. Stop screaming and looking hard. I got, no, he plays from the beginning, but when he gets to stop screaming and looking hard, it's out of a great big bodyguard. So, doom, 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 doom. He throws the, the middle of J. Rue underneath top billing, which J. Rue was already played earlier in the night, and it's the record of the moment. You didn't play like that. Started in two other moments. Threw on top billing that everybody knows every word to acapella without the beat, and then those top those J Ru underneath it. So step up with you want to get hurt. Mind blown. Then he goes into whatever he feels like it because yeah. he started somewhere different to bring you back to where you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So that's my example of how I want it to be. I wanted to be the radio's playing. It went off. My record came on. My record went off. Then the radio came back. Wow. This um regarding Amy Winehouse. Um, I noticed in her song "In My Bed," you use the same sample that you use for um Nas made you look. Wish I could say it breaks my heart like you did in the beginning. It's not that. Was it your hers or your idea to resample that? It was mine. Um, basically, I was sitting there going, this is going to be so hot for Nas. Like, it was before. I did that before the Nas record even came out. I started oh, wow. Um, and the reason why I did it is because I was like, somebody's going to sample it and put some corny-ass chords over my beat and then ask me to clear it and then tell me that this is the new R&B record. <laughs> so I'm not clearing nobody's sample. Either after that, people asked me to clear it. Cassie and some other people was like, don't deny it. You know what I'm saying? I just deaded it because I felt like I, if you want to use the beat, then I might as well sample it myself rather than giving you the opportunity to just say nothing over the top. What was the story behind uh, Made You Look? I, I feel like you had told me once that you wanted Primo to make that beat. Yeah, you know, because what Primo had done at that time was he made, you know, the Come Clean beat. He took, like, simple break beats, you know, uh, unbelievable. Like he takes stuff that was right in front of your face and then chop it up. And then you're like, dang, he got this break beat that everybody knows sound and crazy. So I actually was chopping it up for Ricky Martin. I was thinking I would use Ricky, Ricky. I was thinking I was put Ricky Martin on Apache 2002. I'm about to be wow. a Living La Vida Apache. <laughs> Living La Vida Apache. <laughs> well, I still can do it, actually. Now that you think about it, I'm actually going to do that. But if I put Ricky Martin on Apache, <laughs> ooh, this is going to be crazy. So I was like, yo, you know what? Yeah, let me just do this real quick. So I was actually slowing down the sample, like figuring out how I was going to chop it up. And then it just felt like the gangster music that me and Nas have been talking about, how I Ain't No Joke felt, how Run's House felt, how my philosophy felt. You know what I'm saying? Those visuals kind of gave us a certain type of energy. And I was like, you know what? I'm actually going to flip this this way. And when I gave it to him, I thought he was going to come back with mad energy on it and be hyped like the beat. 
And then he just leaned all the way back on it, like Rakim, you know. Mm. I ain't no joke. Let's get it all in perspective. Like, he just Rakimed on it, and I didn't see it coming. Now let's get it all in perspective For all y'all enjoyment, a song y'all can step with Y'all appointed me to bring rap justice But I ain't 5-0, y'all know it's Nas, yo That was kind of an important record in New York Because it was like right after all the beef with, with Jay It was after Ether and all that It was kind of crazy because like the city I mean there wasn't tension But there was a little bit of tension in the city and stuff like that Were you guys feeling that pressure in, in the studio when y'all were recording? Because was was that the first song that y'all recorded for the for the album for Godson? Yeah, it that's was. first one. It was more than that. You know, it was the ether. Then it was the summer jam incident, and then with the summer jam incident, that he didn't end up going on summer jam. He went to Power One Hundred Five. Then he was talking crazy about everybody at High Ninety Seven. But remember, I'm at High Ninety Seven and Jimmy Flex, my best friends. Right. I was living in Miami, so I'm listening. And I'm like, okay, how's this going to pan out? Because I wasn't around, you know what I'm saying? And he felt slighted. He felt slighted from the battle. He felt slighted from the way that, you know, Hot 97 was running as a Def Jam machine. At that time, I was mostly Def Jam artists on a Summer Jam. And, you know, what he was going to do at Summer Jam, whatever their issues with it, he was like, how are y'all going to censor what I'm doing, but I didn't censor what nobody else did to me? So he was upset. He was mad. You know, this mom had just passed a couple months before that. So he was like, on. Oh, edge and really upset so for me it was a thing of okay i'm making this music but i also had to feel the tension of how that's going to squash it was also you know he had just made the pledge with uh murder inc and he was dissing jay on the record with his boys you know earth produced super ugly but then months later he won a record with Nas dissing him and then they're talking at DMX, and then DMX is still Nas' man from Belly. So it was all this cross back and forth, and then the Supremes are around and everything else is around. So he's just sitting down like, all right, cool. And I'm being the cool queen said I am. So I'm watching what's happening going, all right, cool. This is what it is. So for me, I had to also make a record that was on squash beats. You know what I'm saying? I had to make that whole situation go away. It had to make everything happen in a different way. That was the tension I felt. It was the, okay, we over here, we're in Miami, we recording. We actually actually drove up to Orlando, and that's where he was at the time, recording that stuff that we drove back to Miami by September. But I'm sitting there looking at all the Queens heads I know from the Murder, Inc. surrounding crew. And I'm sitting there like, I'm like okay, so y'all over here, this is what's going on. Then I'm looking on the other side, it's the energy of, you know, Flex and Angie. So I got to squash this beef with Flex and Angie. That's got to happen or it's not going to work. So I had to go and deal with that. Then we dealing with just the him and Jay stuff was totally separate to that on another side of whatever's going on. And I'm just kind of watching, you know, so there, there was a definitely intense moment. But as always, Nas is cool and collective where they're just sitting there watching what was going to happen. And then we delivered that song as the silver bullet to shut everything up. Basically, what was being planned by the Poison That Be was that Nas drops a record with Ashanti and Jay drops me and my girlfriend. Mm. That happened. Because I used Rising to the Top on Hey Nas, knowing that they were never going to make a better Queen record on the R&B tip than the sample of Rising to the Top. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Chess. The phone rings. 
Another peaceful moment is lost Latifah's chest jingle and set it off I press pause and the bed is a king I let it ring four or five times Answer while I'm puffing my green It's Tamika saying hi Nas I caught a flashback of her asking me Was I asthmatic for I tapped that She offered me dinner under the moon I said sorry I made plans and raised boom 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 And you know that had to happen And then Hakeem came up to me and was like yo I was in the club the other night Flex played the Nas record Like he played it I was like, all right, it's time. Because I knew him. He can't help it. And as much as he might have been mad at Nas at the time, he he's a B-boy. The song was hot. The song was hot, but even more than that, it's Apache. He's yeah, a can't go wrong with that beat. He, he can't, he can't, but he's Bronx. He's a B-boy from the Bronx with Ashy Knuckles making hip-hop. Shucking flexes Ash on their knuckles. My Ash and my knuckles right now. This is hip-hop head. This is part of what does it. When we hear a dust beat, it's like... Like, he wanted to play it so bad. So he had to play it. And when he played it, I said, all right, cool. So I just was like, all right, let me go talk to them now. Did you have to talk to them? Did you have to, like, fly to New York and squash the shit with them? I was, I was in New York already. You yeah, was, was in New York. York? We walked over from Electric Lady Studios, walked over to Highland Center. Was your strategy, yo, I got to squash this shit and then drop the record? Or or did you just think that the record itself would speak for itself and then you, you could squash it on the side? You know what I mean? Nah, the, the thing is that... Because were you worried that Hot 97 yeah, yeah. wasn't going to play it? You know what I'm saying? I mean, well, that's where I can kicks in. I can is in Peace of President and Beethoven. But it's also I know I can for the little kids. At that time, Nelly's getting hot in here. Missy's, you got a big dick, you're going to work it. Those were the singles they're playing. So you're going to play those. And you're not going to play I Know I Can for the kids. What's wrong with y'all people? Where's your morals? Another chess move. I Know I Can and Made You Look being classic breakbeats in their raw form. No 808s at it, no hi-hats at it. They were raw hip-hop, but they were also positioned to move things along. Next thing was Impeach the President. Yeah. Right. So we got squashes, yo. So this is what it is. But even more than that, I had to have a time when Nas felt like he wanted to squash it. So you know, I was at Electric Lady. I asked him, like, yo, what's up? You ready? You know what I'm saying? Like, you want to do this? And he was like, yeah, if we could do it, we'll squash it. So I was like, all right. I walked over and I waited for him. He came downstairs, Cypher Sounds there. And then I was like, y'all didn't talk to me. Then me and him walked away. But once again, you know, my relationship with Flex was in 2002. My relationship with Flex is 1999, 1990. Mm -hmm. Us being in before he was even established, me not being established. And at that time, you know, it was just really about, this is what it is, this is the perspective. And he was just like, all right, just tell Stout or whoever else trying to talk. I don't want to talk to them, like I did with you. And that, was, that happened based upon both their respect for me and where it was at. And I made sure that any records that was saying anything crazy got it right that night. Did you make those records in order? Was it Made You Look and I Can? Yeah, it was during the same week. When I showed up in Orlando with um, the Made You Look track, because I had made that in Miami and then left it on Nas thing. So I went up there with that. And then the next day when I got there, I got there at night. Well, maybe in the afternoon. But when I, they had houses that we were all staying, like timeshare houses. So Alchemist knew how to get to the studio. So Alchemist was driving my truck and he was in the studio. So I was like, yo, I think I want to use that Pete the President. He's like, really? I was like, yeah, Pete the President. But I don't want to put a kick or a snare, nothing on it. I just want to have the raw and Pete the President. He was like, 
wow, okay, do it. So I went to the studio and I remember that Greg Nice said that he was at the studio when KRS made the bridges over. And you know, they were gonna play the bass line on the Juno to sound more like the Supercat Boops record. But then Greg's like, now nah, that piano in there look ill. So KRS One played the bass line on the piano and said G sampled it. And then that's how they made the bridges over that night and played it on, you know, played it at the light quarter. They wouldn't have made a play play at the light quarter. So I remember him telling me that story. So I was like, yo, what's up with that piano? He said it's out of tune. I was like, don't worry about it plug it up. So I went on the piano and then I actually played it. But my thought was that I could have Alicia Keys playing Furry Lease and Nas rapping and they'd be like the girl doing piano lessons and the kids trying to rap. And mm. they grow up to be Nas and Alicia Keys. But by the time I did it and came up with the hook and you know that I know I can and all the other pieces. And I he got to the studio and I told him, he was like, Yo, how'd you know I want to do a record like that? I'm like, oh. It's just what it is. The fact that I made something I was able to get played at thousands of hood graduations for kindergarten. Yeah. Uh, for um, Get Down, which is probably the other main song album for me. Right. New York streets were killers of walk like Pistol Pete and Pappy Mason. Gave the young boys admiration. Prince from Queens and Fritz from Harlem. Street legends. The drugs kept the hood from starving. So Nas that morning, you know, a lot of times what he'll do is, he'll be like almost like a family. So he'll be like, yo, I want to use that um, pay the cost to be bought to James Brown drink the white iced tea. Like, all right, so I went to Colony Records, bought it that day. But I don't know really what he wanted to do, but he just told me, hey, I want you to figure out what to do. So I had the sample on deck. So all these different things happened. He's like, yo, you looped up that um, that thing for me, the whatever. And he's like, yo, I'm going to go on some biggie shit. And he wrote the rhyme, Great Goose and Cranberry, whatever he had into a blunt and he wrote that and then he went in and spit the, the verse the first verse of get down and he came out like yo throw the get down and i already had it on deck get down get down built it up then we did the second verse three weeks later everybody get down 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 get so Nas and Tupac have something in, in common. The way that they write, Nas said the buck that bought the bottle should have struck the lotto. I switched my motto. Instead of saying fuck tomorrow, that buck that bought a bottle could have struck the lotto. He said that when he was 19, but he's in his late 40s now, and it's still the truth. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the verses that if you said a verse and it was like, you would be some jeans and this and that, and you're naming all the brands of the week, those things run out. But when you made a song that was about the truth, it actually still resonates so many years later. It's timeless. That, that That's what makes a lot of the stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you might've heard on his last couple albums that actually was written 10 years, eight years. The verses for The Don, that one was on Life is Good. We probably recorded that in like 05. Oh, the first wow. Was you working with Jay-Z ever on the table? Or was that something that you never even cared to do or probably had to run in the same circles or cross paths at some point? Me and hip hop were always cool. You know mm. what I'm saying? So even at the time when um, all the stuff was going on, like, you know, the, oh yeah, like the takeover time into whatever it is, <laughs> hip hop, like I lived actually in Worldwide Plaza right next to the Def Jam office. Mm -hmm. So I could look out my window and see when everybody got to work and when they'd be walking across, like right out of my window. I lived on the third floor, right over the door, man, overlooking their parking lot, walking in. So me and hip hop were always tight, but like say, you know, while 
before Ether dropped. You know, I'm in Miami, I'm working on Miss Dynamite. Here comes out of nowhere, walking across the street, here comes hip hop. I'm like, yo, what up, huh? Yo, how that Nas album going, okay? <laughs> Good, you know what I'm saying? But it was just like these moments, me and him always talk about, well, I've run into him out of the middle of nowhere. And it's just me and him, and I'm like, yo, what up? So me and hip hop were cool. And I might have given hip hop some tracks with Jay way back then. And then um, not too long ago, maybe four or five years ago, um, I had a meeting with him in his house about doing some records. Um, and it just didn't happen yet. Partially at this point, just because I haven't, I'm not, a, if I send a real nigga some music, I got to send him some some crack. It can't be baking soda. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. I, I feel like I got this track and you don't get on this, woo! but I haven't had that type of ego with my creations. My creations in this period have been a little bit more personal. And yeah. with him, you know, I had meetings with them where we express, you know, okay, maybe we should do something. And I got a chance to ask him some questions the same way that I would ask other artists questions. I just haven't actually created that music and done that. And then I think on another level, we just moved at different frequencies where he actually is on a, this is what's going on right now frequency. And I create on this is what's going on forever frequency. I just feel like where Jay is at now in his career, your production would fit him better than maybe it did earlier in his career. And I would I would love to hear a production with you and Jay-Z yeah. do some it's shit all, now. Yeah, it'd be all conversations on where it actually lands. But then I just know that me creating now, I'm, I'm like a whole other monster as far as what it takes for me to get to do it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Sample me. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, you know, actually, yeah. I'm the, with no ID sample Fuji Live for... Um, uh, Moonlight. Moonlight, exactly. We stuck in La La Land Even when we win, we gon' lose We got the same fucking flows I don't know who is who So when, they, when he did that, I'm on Jay's album without being on Jay's album. I'm saying. <laughs> Salam, man. Thank you so much for. I mean, it's been like an honor, and I, if if I could keep recording, I, I would keep. I would keep this going for another two, three hours if I could. I have so many questions. Yeah, man. I I'll be around for a few more years. <laughs> for sure. Go <laughs> <laughs> look for you in Miami, man. I don't know if we're going to Zanzibar, but it's an island life somewhere. Bro, Zanzibar this summer. Let's do it, man. July, I'm there. Salam, thank you, man. Nice to meet you, man. Bro, man. Pleasure. Man. For real. Been a fan since uh, Mac Daddy. Came out back in the early nineties. Thank you, Salam. Thank you. Peace, peace. Like a queen. So, if you want to watch this episode on YouTube or view some of our older episodes as well, you can go to YouTube.com/slash/RoadPodcast. Like, comment, subscribe. We post new episodes every Thursday. Every Thursday, y'all, without fail. Uh, 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 uh. The sweetest thing I've ever known. Was like the kiss on a collarbone, soft caress of happiness. The way you are, your style of dress. I wish I didn't get so weak. Oh, Ooh, baby, just to hear you speak makes me argue just.
Follow like Athena, Kina, cleaner, just a few misdemeanors. Hit me in the heart, part professional, cleaner. But shorty dig, you wasn't from this side. We did the slide, and let me whip your ride. L Boogie had the flavor sized up for tea. Vocab was exquisite, and still on the street. I should have seen her, like when Ike met Tina. How you were shooken when I booked the arena. Jake's had you locked up, fates had us knocked up. Snakes in the state could get anybody pop, but we stayed in the struggle. Prayed in the trouble. While you on the street, I'm on tour, we made double. Fine, and you held mics divine with every cat singing with you one time. You was a meatiest dish, locked in a media air, calling me your little Brownsville Swedish fish. More times than not, it got hot trying to date you. You know I never meant it when I told you that I hate and you. And though during our term, everyone tried to beat us. I keep you in my heart, you was always the sweetest. Boogie, what happened to Peace? 